I'm in Granada, Spain, so España, enjoying a year here with my family. Our kids are 11 years old and nine years old, so they're right on kind of elementary, early middle school age. Whoa, whoa, man. This does not fit the narrative. You're not <laughs> supposed to be able to do this with young kids. Didn't you read yeah. the books? Didn't you read yeah. the blogs? What are you talking about? You're traveling around the world with a young family. I thought this was impossible. How the yeah, heck did you pull that off? Welcome to the Action Academy Podcast. Stand back while I celebrate freedom. The show where we help you achieve financial independence with the mindsets, methods, and actionable steps from guests who've already earned their freedom. The flags of freedom fly. Choose to do what you want. What you want. With who you want. With who you want. When you want. When you want. With another episode today. Now, here's your host, Brian Lubin. Vamos. Senor Carson. Buenas tardes, amigo. How are you, buddy? Buenas tardes. Great to see you, Brian. Thanks for having me. Man, I'm so excited. Tell the people where you're recording this from because we accidentally just went international again. Yeah, I'm in Granada, Spain. So España and Southern Spain enjoying a year here with my family. So we're, this is, it's dark outside while you're in the U.S. I'm about six hours ahead. All right. So keynote here, Chad. So you're with your family. And then what does your family look like right now? Yeah, two, two young kids, my wife and I, and our kids are 11 years old and nine years old. So they're right on kind of elementary, early middle school age. Whoa, whoa, man. This does not fit the narrative. You're not <laughs> supposed to be able to do this with young kids. Didn't you read yeah. the books? Didn't you read yeah. the blogs? What are you talking about? You're traveling around the world with a young family. I thought this was impossible. How the yeah, heck did you pull that off? Yeah, this has been a long time coming. The root of this story has to, the very first date I took with my wife. We were hiking and hanging out at a waterfall in South Carolina. And I was like, we were like, what do you want to do with your life? What do you want to do? First thing you ask on a date, right? After two or three hours. And we talked about traveling, traveling abroad. Yeah. And living abroad and particularly in Latin America and some other places that Spanish speaking places. Cause my wife's a Spanish teacher and I was interested in taking Spanish and just expanding my, my language skills and cultural horizons. So it was kind of like that was the seed. And so once we started a family, we were like, hey, let's, we had traveled some before kids as well, did some cool mini retirements and backpacking and going all over the place. But once we have kids, it's typically, all right, I don't want to uproot that in their routines and do all this. But for us, it was just, we saw it as a gift to them to allow them to be able to do that. It was also something that was a lot of fun for us, just push ourselves as parents. How can we do this? How can we uproot ourselves and put ourselves in a new place? It's sort of, I think the family dynamic and the growth dynamic and growing closer together is a big part of both the motivation and the challenge of it. But it's been a really cool experience. There's been some rough spots, but it's it's a lot of fun to do it as a family, having also done a lot of traveling on my own. Yeah, that's really interesting, especially from my perspective, because it's like now that's what I wanted to build as I was. It's one of my core principles and values is travel and fun. That's something I want to have like for my entire life. And I think that a lot of people that listen to the show share that same value. I'm curious, when you met your wife, was that back when you were playing football for Clemson or was it shortly after? It was shortly after I'd already taken the retirement from, I thought I was going to play in the NFL for a little bit. And that dream got crushed pretty quickly. Luckily for my body and my head, probably it got crushed quickly. But so I was in South Carolina and I just decided to be an entrepreneur. 
I was still in like the fledgling stages of, you know, we were yeah. flipping houses at the time and had a business partner. And so I was just like, we might've flipped our first house and I was at yoga class and just trying to de-stress a little bit. And so when I went, I met her and she was doing in the yoga class as well and teaching Spanish in town. So it was not a college kind of relationship. It was like just getting started in the real world and we were both yeah. trying to figure things out. All right. So that's two for two. Shout out to Matt Amable because he was just talking about doing yoga. He's like, I'm going to meet my wife in yoga class. So then that's the universe saying two for two. So guys, I've got to start yoga. Now. I got to find love. I got to do yoga. The reason I ask all of that is because when it comes to dating as an entrepreneur, I find that it's it's different, right? Because you have your core beliefs on life and you have your core values, especially now that you take the decision to leave the rat race and live an untraditional, unconventional style of life to where you on you and your wife on your first date, you were saying, hey, I want to travel abroad. I want to travel around the world. This is very important to me. Do you echo the same value? I'm curious about your perspectives on that, especially when it comes to an entrepreneurial relationship. Yeah, yeah I think it's it could put a lot of stress at times because entrepreneurs, we're not that easy to deal with, probably. We have schedules what? that are hectic. We have ambition. We have all sorts of other pluses and minuses of our personalities, right? But I think that I don't have any recipes for what works, but I do know the thing that we I did at the beginning of the relationship, which is wear it on my sleeve. I was an entrepreneur. I had my, I was a fledgling entrepreneur too. I'm just struggling mm-hmm. to get by. So I had the signs for my business with my phone number on the side of my car. Like I was one of those like local, let's just get it going entrepreneurs. Like I got to spend 200 bucks to throw, plaster my car with signs so that I can try to survive out here. And it was funny though, because my very first date, that same date we went hiking, I went to pick her up with my signs all over the side of my car. <laughs> she, I was just waiting to see what her face would say. You know, like, hey, she's so, get out. Is she going to go back into her house? to say, uh-uh, I'm not doing this. And she got in the car. She went with it. She didn't say anything about it. And we rolled with it. I love it, man. I love it. So I want to take you down a couple different rabbit holes here before we get into the real estate itself, which you're obviously very well known for. This is your entire brand as you help people achieve financial freedom through real estate investing. Hit a little bit about many retirements because you just mentioned that. Talk about that concept and how you apply that in your life. Yeah, it, it came to me. It was freedom and flexibility. I think you said that was one of your core values and travel was always something that I knew I wanted to do. But as a new entrepreneur, I, f- I felt like there's this path you would take. And you probably are familiar with this path as well. It's like in the entrepreneurial world, you can take that. I'm going to build this big business. I'm going to make it grow. I'm going to build systems. I'm going to have people. I'm going to make yeah. a ton of money. And then I'm either going to like cash out at the end, or I'm just going to somehow put together this or this organization that's going to run without me somehow. And then I'm going to go travel and let the do the thing. So there's always like that dream Hopefully. behind the business. And when I was as a new entrepreneur, I kind of went down that path a little bit. Oh, I got to scale. I got to systematize. I got to do all that. And that's cool. Like I'm, there's nothing against it. But I got a wake up call both with the real world and was just reading some books at the time, like three or four years into my business. One of them was the 2008 recession. <laughs> you know, just all right. Here's a big slap upside the face. You got to survive and figure things out. And we that kind of grow big, go big kind of business was difficult when you have debt and we have growth and all of a sudden the economy pulls out from under you. So that's one kind of thing in the background. The other though, right at the same time, I was reading books like The Four Hour Work Week with Tim Ferriss talking about not just waiting until the end of your life to have the fruits of your money and your business, like to intersperse that throughout your life. What's the point here? Like you're in your twenties, you're going to have different benefits to travel and enjoying life that you will in your thirties, that you will in your forties, your fifties, your sixties, your seventies. Like all of them have their own benefits, but to defer your entire life until you can enjoy it in your fifties and sixties, like that sucks. That's not what I wanted to do. And so that message 
really hit me hard. And I tried to apply that to my own real estate investing style. And it's kind of become my own. It was my personal just belief, but also my personal brand as well. I've been keeping it small and mighty and not trying to shoot for the moon in terms of selling out and buying a, th- a thousand units and eventually making enough money. Like now build in these mini retirements, building the, these, it's almost like you're climbing a mountain. And yes, you want to get to the top. You want to have this ultimate financial freedom where you really can do anything you want for as long mm-hmm. as you want, but yeah. have some plateaus along the way. Build in these mini retirements and these times to travel and these times to take a breath and to enjoy life a little bit, both throughout the journey and at the end of the journey. And don't make it an either or thing. I like that. And what you're describing is called binary thinking, right? And that's what I try to avoid. And sometimes I find myself falling back into the trap of binary thinking to where it's either this or that. I can either be this, do this, or it's this, A or B. And the reality is that the spice of life is found in the gray in between. It's a balancing act, not a balance. And so that's why I'm really interested to have you on the show because A, you live a really interesting life because you're real estate. And B, you don't talk about it as much or at least as much as you'd like to. I don't feel like you got this twinkle in your eye. And we talk about real estate. We talk about all these vehicles to get us to an end destination. But I feel we don't spend enough time discussing what the end destination actually looks like. So that's why I'm really interested about you and what you do. Talk about your money life manifesto, because I really like that you sprinkled a little bit of Aristotle in there. I think that's a pretty cool concept. (laughs) Yeah. So the Money Life Manifesto is my personal, everything I do with my online stuff is to me first, right? I'm the first student, the first reader. And the idea was I was reading, I like philosophy and I was reading about the Stoics and all the way back to Aristotle as well in ancient Greece. And he had this concept that anything good, if you take it too extreme, too little or too much becomes a bad thing. So take courage, for example. If you have too much courage, you're the type of person who's going to jump out of a pair, jump out of an airplane without a parachute. Let's go. Let's do this. And you might survive with some wings every once in a while, but that's a pretty stupid thing to do. That's the extreme too much courage. And then too little courage is being a coward, like never getting out of your room and never facing the challenges of life. So either one of those is a bad extreme. And so you want to try to find that the happy medium, that you know, the middle point. And that was what Aristotle tried to say when you're living with virtue is finding for yourself that personal balance point between the two. And for me, it just struck me that money's pretty similar to that. I, I think a lot of us as entrepreneurs, we tend, and this is me too, tended to be a little bit too extreme on the money's really important side of things. Mm-hmm. It is. Money's great. It's a wonderful tool. But when you emphasize it so much, you let it dominate your life, then you lose all those other things that are important to you as well. And you let you become either just grinding too hard and hustling too much, that hustle culture kind of thing, or you start doing something where you're getting greedy and you're trying to go for too much, you're taking too much risk. And so that that's the extreme I tended to fall on early on. But then it's funny going back to the story with my wife, We the first money conversations we had, she was a little bit more on the Money's not that important side of things. She had been traveling and camping and kind of was frugal like I was. But for yeah, it's like reasons, a vagabond. You know? Yeah, like kind of vagabonding and environmentalist and cared about how you treat people, being a good person. And so we kind of had these conversations. And then this money. guy she, comes with his face yeah. on the side of the car. And she's <laughs> obviously future father of my children. Yeah, exactly. She's I don't think I'm going to marry this capitalist. But uh, we, we had some good conversations about it. It was like we found us some common ground there because... I think we were both on too, a little too far of an extreme. And she was on the extreme where money's not important. My point to her was like, you say money's not important, but when money's, when you act like that, then money just controls your life and you can't, you have never have any options, mm. you never have any freedom. And so the, the idea of the, the money life manifesto is like, let's not make it too important. Let's not make it too little important. 
Let's find that middle ground. Let's build our business, build our investments in a way that allows us to have that flexibility and freedom we want. But ultimately, let's treat our business and our money like a tool. And when we need another tool, we put it back in the toolbox. We don't worship the tool and make it like more important than it is. Yeah, you use the tool. You don't let the tool use you. And ladies and gentlemen, you may have heard a beeping there. I'm not going to edit that out because that was the thermometer going off because Chad was speaking some fire. All right. Yeah, exactly. He's preaching. It was the thermometer <laughs> was going. We got a fever over here and we need that more cowbell. My little exercise timer. So for, <laughs> me, for me to get up and do my, uh, do my burpees, but I'm not going to. Okay. That's fair. Yeah. And Aristotle <laughs> called it the golden mean. And I love that concept because that's something that I've had to apply and implement in my life. Thankfully at a younger age, because I was able to get that feedback and that wisdom from those that are further down the path than me that have hit that 20 million, 50 million, 100 million, billion dollar net worth. And they say, hey, man, just so you know, like you think it's worth it, but it may not be, right? Because everyone has their different goals. Sometimes it's crazy to think about, especially coming from this podcast, but people come on here with thousands of units, sometimes 15 paid off properties, cash flowing. That's all you need. That's all you need. It may be a better quality of life too. So you wanted to say something to that? No, I think that's it. I'm just, yeah, hundred percent agree. And that, that was the realization and everybody has to come to it in their own way. That's why I don't want to give somebody and say, Hey, 50 units is good or 10 units is good or a thousand units is bad. All I'm saying is my big message with business and with real estate investing is like, instead of making like 10 Xing and going try to get for the most with your business, try to find that elegant solution like that. What's the minimal amount of properties? What's the minimal amount of structure? What's the minimal amount of complexity I can have that still accomplishes all my financial goals. If you can shoot for that, if you can make that your goal, then the rest of it can take care of itself because you start creating more time and you start creating more flexibility. And those are other currencies. Like those currencies are the most rare parts. You can always create more money. Like money's cool. But if you start tying yourself down to a job, to a business, to a structure, like that's, that's always been like my biggest, like, Repulsion, like I, anything, any deal, any business deal, any structure, any partnership is threatening to take my time or flexibility. Forget it. Like I passed on jobs, I passed on careers and venture capital, I passed on all sorts of stuff that could have made me ten times more money. But I was like, no, like freedom, flexibility, earlier, more of it, and that's the way I measure my 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 money life manifesto. That's the way I measure success. Yeah. People don't think about true profit and true profit is revenue minus expenses minus headaches. So I had a guy, so I had a guy mention something to me where he said, yeah, I could take this deal from this private equity guy and I could ramp up my portfolio to take maybe an additional 50 to hundred units down each month. He goes, but then I thought about it and how much extra time would that take from me? to be able to operate that or even manage the manager that's managing that because it's just degrees and degrees. And he goes, okay, cool. I have to remove that period of time because we all have a finite amount of hours. I have to remove that period of time from another part. So all I have left is my family. So am I willing to remove six hours away from my family to do that to where I can make more monies to be able to allow myself to spend more time with my family? And then all of a sudden, you've just got this giant catch-22 where you're like, just not even worth it. It's not worth making the decision. So I love what you said there. Another point, and then I want to get into how thickly you're going about traveling around with your family. And then don't worry, ladies and gentlemen, we're getting into the real estate. Um, A quote that I heard that really changed my life was that your greatest weakness or your greatest weaknesses are your greatest strengths overused. 
And Mm -hmm. I think that applies exactly what you're saying to your golden mean, the money life manifesto. So my question to you is, what do you think is your greatest weakness? That's a strength overused. Yeah, man, that's a good one. I love it. Love these deep questions. Yeah, we can talk about always, cap rate. Yeah, this is better. This is better. I, I struggle personally, like with the ambition. And this is the Money Life Manifesto. This is the same yep. struggle because I love the game. I played football in college. Like I was a middle linebacker in the middle of the hustle. Like I was in the middle of the fire. 80,000 people in the stands. Let's get, let's get it going. Playing the defense and tense. So like I, it, there's a part, there's something in your genes sometimes. Like you love the arena, you love the game. And so for me, it's always been, like what's this happy medium? And it's never a perfect balance, right? It's always, all right, I want to be in the game. I want to be pushing it. I want to make a difference. I want to impact other people. At the same time, I want to have some balance in my life. I want to have some, I want to have some relationships. I think that's really what it comes down to that relationship with yourself, relationship with your wife, relationship with your kids, with your friends, with your family requires space. It requires time. It requires slowness. And so that's a big part of why I love Latin America and traveling in Spain. I know there's other parts. Of the I was about to say too. siestas, but, but slowness, like they really, my friends in Spain and in Ecuador where we lived really I appreciated the quality time they had with family. So that when you had a meal with family, it's not something to rush. That's something you take your time with. You don't put a, you don't have a watch on and say, I got to be gone in 60 minutes. It's something that you take your watch off and you focus on the people and you focus on quality. And so that, so my struggle, going back to your, your question, like my strengths, ambition, being the linebacker, being tenacious, going after it, also a weakness because it can be, it can be used to, to an extreme. And so I don't know. That, it is what it is. I think I'm finding my way with that. And I, part of the teaching other people is happy medium I found lately. I love being in the game with real estate investing still. The people and seeing their successes, also investing my money with other entrepreneurs and letting them be the on the ground person that I was early on and me being the money person who's consulting behind the scenes and helping out. That's mm-hmm. pretty fun. Like I found that to be a way to still have some ambition and also grow the money pot in a way that's just a fun game to do and then use that money and use that as a tool to do more cool stuff. So that's where I am at this moment. Yeah. My couple ones are confidence. So huge strength, but what happens when confidence is overused to get perceived yeah. as cockiness, right? Yep. So that's a big one. Another one for me is casting vision. So I found that casting vision is a really big strength of mine because I'm really good at calling my shots and then making them appear in reality. But then that's also a weakness because then I tend to force others into that vision where it's like, hey, I don't share this vision. That's also how a relationship of mine ended where I was like, this is the vision. This is happening. And then all of a sudden, I don't want this. This isn't the vision I'm looking for. And sometimes friendships as well. I have a tendency to force people into that. So that's something I'm working on. And then patience. So I take massive action and I get things done. I get things done fast. And the opposite of that is, hey, slow down. Like you said, have patience. And to your point, in Latin America, in Spain, um, people aren't really doing the fast food thing. I found that as a key differentiator. You're sitting down. You don't really sit and eat in your car. Americans eat in our cars a lot. Or we eat while we're walking. Yeah. Or we eat while we're walking. There. I was walking, eating a banana or a sandwich the other day, and people were, what you doing, man? Sit on the bench over there and eat your banana. (laughs) Yeah. So people are snacking and picnicking in the parks. When you go get coffee in the morning, you're not sitting in line in your car. You're going to the cafe and you're having a shot of espresso and you're sitting there and it's a social thing. And lunch and dinner is a social thing. 
And I think that serves as a pretty cool transition point into how you're doing this with a young family. Let's talk about a little bit of the logistics of that, because there's a lot of guys listening to this that make got big old businesses, make a boatload of money. And you got guys that are trying to have a big old business and have a boatload of money to be able to do exactly what you're doing with young kids. So they use it as an excuse for never being able to do it. They say, I've got the young kids. We're not going to be able to do it. So how did you pull it off specifically in the context of doing this with your entire family and not just being a young whippersnapper like me, just able to fly around and do whatever I feel like? Part of it I'll qualify is that when you have two parents on the same page, like that's cool. I have friends who and family members are like, oh, I'd love to do that. But my spouse really is that that's not their thing. And so I'll qualify that. Like our first date, we were talking about going and traveling abroad. So I think it helps having both partners really willing to do that. Um, but with kids, I think the earlier you start, the better. I think sometimes with a brand newborn, you don't want to travel with a newborn baby, but some people do. I've seen people do it, but the, the, don't be afraid to start testing it. So we tested road trips. Like when our daughter was three or four months old, our first daughter, we took off and went for a month and a half to Colorado and just went out West and stayed in hotels and hiked around. I'd have her, I just love those little carriers and I could carry them carrier hiking up the mountain for five or six hours. That was cool. Bring the food, bring the diapers, all that stuff. So just start testing your limits in small ways and just get in the habit of doing that in smaller ways. And then we then expanded from a month to, all right, let's do this for a whole year maybe. And so that's when we went to Ecuador. Our daughters are three and five at the time. And so a three-year-old they just could go with the flow, right? They're, they're she remembers hanging. some of it, but it wasn't like, she's like, Daddy, I don't want to leave my friends. Yeah, she was. She just likes to be with Daddy and Mommy. Our five-year-old was in the same boat, but she had some kindergarten. She was in kindergarten. So again, starting early was nice. And they got used to, I think, being on the road, just something they did. Although our style of travel is not as much. Some people go place to place. We're much more find a place, get your apartment, settle down, go to a local slow school, mats. get to know people. Yeah, it's totally a slow travel thing. We've done the backpacking stuff too, but we just like to get our spot and settle in and try to be like just local one another. We're never going to be local, but we try to settle in. So that that is a, probably the biggest recommendation for kids is if you're a family who can handle like the backpack thing from place to place and travel around the world, new place every week, that's cool. But our style and our temperament it works better. Kids like routines. Kids like to have some rhythm to life. I like to have some rhythm to life too with my yeah. own projects. So I, I think that's been very helpful for us is Airbnb is so cool for that. Now I can't imagine there were ways to do this before, but Airbnb makes it so easy all over the world to find relatively easy to stay in places that are, you can see, is it family friendly? Is it going to places for our kids to play? And so we would start like when we looked in Ecuador, we had never been to Ecuador. We went there in 2017 we went on some Facebook groups, chatted with people. Hey, where are the cool places? Where are the cool parks? And then we would just, for us, this walkability in parks or everything, both within yep. our real estate investing and our travel too. So we would just find those cool parks that are relatively safe places. And then we just look for Airbnbs near there. And we would research everything, but we wouldn't over plan it. We just like to helicopter in, figure it out once we get on the ground. So we'd have a list of schools to look at. We'd have a list of Airbnbs, stay in a place for a few nights, and then just get on the ground and walk around, check it out, look around. And we'd find our happy spot there. And we ended up staying 17 months instead of 12 months like we originally planned. But it was, I think, the flexibility in addition to just being having some criteria you want as a family. Like for us, parks, playgrounds 
near cool green spaces where mom and dad can exercise near the school. So we want to be able to walk to the school. So you start kind of listing your criteria like that and you, you back into a location that's pretty fun and good to work in. And the money is a whole another part of the equation. I'm happy to talk about the mechanics on that, but those are the core logistic criteria that we look for. Oh, we don't talk about money at all in this podcast. What are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, no, that's exactly what we're going to talk about. Yeah. So my, my, I guess that serves as a really good pivot into going into the real estate and everything because you are doing things in a way that interest me because you obviously there's difficulties that I can't see, but you are operating to where you can have this freedom, have this flexibility to do what you want, when you want, with who you want. People are listening to this right now and they're like, holy shit, Chad can get, must be nice, right? You can go travel six months, check out Colorado, see if it's a fit. That's what I did with Austin. I got an Airbnb for two months. I came over here to check it out, land the helicopter. As soon as the helicopter landed two days in, I was like, I don't want to stay in an Airbnb. I'm getting an apartment here. And I got an apartment for 12 months. And now this is the beginnings of my new podcast studio that's going to be finished by the end of this week. And it's really sweet. So yeah, let's do a transition there. What's the portfolio look like today? What's the cash flow look like today? And then let's dissect it. Yeah. So the portfolio is mainly, it's in Clemson, South Carolina. And so going back to the, if you remember the beginning of my story, I used to flip houses. And so I'm in the upstate of South Carolina and I used to have a pretty broad area when you flip houses and try to buy houses way below value, you got to have a pretty big territory to, to find those deals. And so I was wholesaling, I was fixing and flipping. And I say, we, we had a, I have a business partner and we've been 50, 50 business partners from the very beginning. We were buddies. When I played football, he had a kind of online sports information business a website that was new during those days. And so the two of us teamed up and we both were interested and started doing that. And over time, we transitioned from being a flipping business where we just, you know, traded hours for dollars flipping instead of trading hours for dollars on a regular job. Yeah. And we, we started building the kind of long-term hold, buy and hold rental properties. And for us, it started off with like single family houses. That was the main thing we did. And we, like a lot of people, we start with the lower price houses because that's what we could afford. That's what seemed like the best cash flow. And we've transitioned over time to have higher quality, median price houses in our target location of Clemson, which is a university town. So we still have a lot of single family houses. But then we also, after I started moving into properties and living in house hacks, like little fourplex units or duplexes, I really got to develop the, a love for the niche of student housing. And, but not just student housing. People think student housing, get a, a house with six bedrooms and pile a bunch of students in there. We have small apartments, like the smaller, the better studio apartments, one bedroom, two bedroom units. And I try to have them walkable to campus or on the bus line. So again, back to my kind of core values that also align with my investing. And so they're all within a couple miles of Clemson, the university. And so about over half of our units, we have 110, we've sold off a couple, but just under 110 units. And some of those are 12 units. Some of those are duplexes. The biggest is a 12 unit. So it's a lot of smaller, older multifamily that we've remodeled. My favorite kind of units are like brick, one story, hardwood floors, a studio or a one or two bedroom. The smaller, the better is for efficiency units. And so that's, we have two different property managers who manage most of those in Clemson. And then we have a few handful that we kind of legacy properties in different kind of a little bit outside of town that we still manage ourselves. And I can do that mainly through technology, through just talking with my team, my property managers, I have really good property managers who I vetted very carefully before I worked with them and knew them personally, trusted them and was slow to hire in that way. And so I depend heavily on my property managers on the ground and then have a point person there that I communicate with. And so that 
what that looks like on a weekly basis is, hey, we've got a maintenance issue that's above the $500 you gave us to kind of make a decision on our own. Should we do that? I've got a quote here for this $900 refrigerator. Can we go for it? And for me, it's yes, go. And it's like a simple text. So that's a normal week. And the most of the time I spend in my real estate business is strategic stuff The hey, we've got an offer on this property. Should we ignore that or do something with it? Playing chess with maybe selling. Over the years, we've been selling off the properties that were less optimal and then trying to replace those with properties that are better to the point where we're pretty happy with where we are. We have a the very low level of debt. I think I figured it out the other day, like probably 15% loan to value Man. To outside to third really? parties and about 30%. Some of the money we have like to private lenders, family members, things like that, which so the total debt is probably 30%, 25, 30% of oh. what the portfolio is worth, which is where we wanted to do. We wanted to get the risk down. We wanted to get our cash flow up. Instead of growing out, out, let's grow our balance sheet and make that safer and lower risk and higher cash flow. That's so we're, there's always improvements to make, but that's where we are now. Sweet. And then <clears throat> and what's the cash flow looking like right now? If you're comfortable sharing, you can share to the degree, to yeah. the degree that you want to. Yeah, I'll share my personal part because I have a business partner and I don't know how, sure. how comfortable he is with That's all fair. his numbers as well. I'm the one who chooses to go out on the podcast and do all that stuff. But I live on a, we have just, you know, it's grown over the years. 10 years ago, my wife and I had like 3,000 a year budget and then we had kids and we got a 5,000 a year budget. Now, like, and we're, t I think we take out of the business. 8,000 bucks a month. And there's still cash flow left over on my 50% portion, plenty of cash flow above that. So that kind of gives you an idea. Like I would say eight to 10,000 a month is pretty standard kind of distributions that I can live off of. And then there's other money in there that we can grow and re reinvest and buy other stuff and pay down. Wanna, you want to hear something crazy? I didn't realize I didn't realize the concept of distributions until recently. Uh, I had no idea what that was. And it, this is good for me to share these things too with the podcast audience because it's like I'm in this entrepreneurship journey too. And now I've got a business that's all of a sudden like a blink and now it's popping out like 50K a month. Nice. And I'm like, whoa, cool. This is fun. I like this. So revenue minus expenses. Here's what's left over. Like I can have fun with that. No, no, you can't. <laughs> <laughs> you can't do that. You need yeah. to have a distribution that you take. So I'm about to have probably about a similar distribution. I think I'm going to stick to probably conservatively about that probably six to eight range cool. for myself. Nice. But yeah, that was a new one where I was like, okay, like I can only take a percentage of what I make and then all the rest needs to be reinvested. So what percentage, um, what percentage are you reinvesting in everything? And like, where does that kind of go? Just new acquisitions? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for a long time, it's been debt payoff and new acquisitions. And so really, it, so that's been a focus it, of yours. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And, I, and this is actually something it's been fun. I read, I'm re writing a book and about to publish it later this year called The Small and Mighty Investor. And something I think a lot of real estate investing books and education don't talk about is the end of your career, like the transition or the end of the journey of the financial independence. And this is relevant for where you reinvest your money. Like it's pretty straightforward when you're early in your career, you have a little bit of money and you try to grow that into a lot of money. And so like the only the the goal and the mechanics of that are to safely compound your money as quickly and as as much as possible, right? That's the name of the game. So you just try to get compounding vehicles, whether that's like a retirement vehicle or a business. Real estate's a great retirement or a compounding vehicle because there's a lot of tax efficiency there. There's a lot of ways you can sell properties and reinvest it. And so the journey most people talk about 
But the thing that I think is not talked about enough, and this is where it comes into the mini retirements and the lifestyle and all that, is that there's always a tension between growth and risk. And then mm -hmm. also there's a tension between ambition and growth and enjoyment and lifestyle. And so for me, like the mechanical way to release some of that tension is you have a choice. And my business partner and I had several forks in the road over the last seven to 10 years where we had to make a choice where like we had a big pile of money from being successful, from selling sure. properties, from saving cash flow. Do you go and buy more properties? Do you, and if you do buy more properties, do you, how much do you leverage it? Do you keep that traditional leverage that you've used, like 20 to 30%? You knew that was going to be my next like, question. Yeah. Because that's <laughs> a little bit. Right? Yeah. And so that's, we started doing two things. Like one, even when we started buying more properties, we started buying them more conservatively. So we bought a, one of our best deals we ever bought was a, a 28 unit property, some small multifamily on a, about six acres of land. And we got a good deal on it. I was kind of 2016, still the tail end of, there's still a few deals left over from the recession and everything. And, but the way we bought it, it was about a million dollar purchase, a little bit over a million bucks. We put, we got a $500,000 bank loan and then put half a million dollars of our own money. And so that's something we couldn't have done earlier in our career, but we chose to do that. It was an easy loan to get. Bankers, no problem. Got it. Yeah, 50%. Yeah. What do you want to do the loan? It was an easy loan. You can negotiate the terms a little bit more. But it's for us, it was a choice of that. We were thinking about paying off some debt with that money. And we were like, okay, we can buy this great deal and buy it conservatively, or we can go pay off more debt. We chose, we felt like comfortable with that kind of growth. It wasn't like aggressive, we're going to lose everything kind of growth. It was more conservative style of growth. And so I guess that's my point here, the long, long-winded answer to say that there's a transition you want to start making. You can make it in intervals. You can make it one big fell swoop, but you should, my own personal opinion is if you want to maximize for lifestyle, if you want to reduce your risk and be sustainable with your business, you need to start reinvesting in more risk reduction and debt pay down or debt securing better kinds of debt. That's the biggest way that I know people have gone out of business in real estate investing and other businesses too. Think about 2008 and nine both in real estate and the whole business world, who were the businesses who went out of, who went bankrupt? Yeah. Were the people super who, who had their loans called due because they said, Hey, pay us our money. All this commercial debt that has three year and five year terms, that is a ticking time bomb waiting to happen. Like balloons are nothing to mess with. And people talk about them casually and it's just, Hey, I got millions and millions of dollars worth of debt that could come due at any point. Like, how are you going to raise that money when nobody's loaning money and when you can't go out and get any equity? Um, so those are the kinds of things you need to think about if you want to get over that hump to have a mature, sustainable business, as opposed to a kind of high growth and more risky type business. Yeah. And it's the two different stages. There's accumulation and there's preservation and it's two different skill sets, like making money and keeping money are two completely different games to play. So honestly, I admire you for having the balls to sit with that. And I mean, because debt was cheap back then, like debt has yeah. been cheap. You probably, what was your interest rate on that loan for 500? Yeah, it was 3.1, something like yeah. that. Yeah. So, so the we, fact that you kept to your guns with a 3.1, yeah. well, I'm sure everyone was probably telling you the same thing that I'm thinking as like a steel man right. argument. Where I'm, yeah. Dude, what are you talking about? You got 500K, put that at a 3% interest rate. You're just buying fixed rate, low interest debt. Come on, man. It's a no brainer. There exactly. is no risk. Exactly. But you went yeah. through 2008 and you have young kids. Yeah. And I have enough. 
Honestly, it's like, all right, I could get more. Like I'm not, I'm never like going to be completely settled, but there's these two meters. Like when you have enough money, go back to that like lifestyle, what's the minimum number of properties, the minimum amount of assets you have to pay your bills. And I've just told you my cash flow. Hey, I have seven, eight grand a month coming in. Anything above that is great. Like I want to secure, pad my wealth and that's happening. Right. But I can do anything I want. Like I'm not, I don't need, I'm not lacking for any kind of financial resources to do the kinds of things our family wants to do. So why take more risk? What game am I trying to play? Because a uh, quote from Warren Buffett that I always repeat in my head over and over, I'm just going to paraphrase it, but it's basically says to, to risk the things you already have for something you don't need is just folly. It's just craziness. What, what's your motivation? Like it, there might be a mo good motivation. It might be that I'm the type of person who wants to prove to myself I can do big things. Cool. Just but, but call it what it is. Don't call it, I'm going for financial freedom or I, whatever it is. Like that, that, that's been what I've tried to have the conversation with myself. It's just like, it's really difficult to stop moving the goalposts. It's really difficult to say you have enough. And, but if you can flip that switch a little bit, and we just, the way I did it for myself and trick myself psychologically is to do it in increments. Like we've never stopped growing, but we've taken the ga gas pedal down some and we've reinvested some and we bought properties in more conservative ways. And I mean, my wife and I paid our house off 3% oh. fixed debt. That's crazy, right? Best decision I ever made though, for us personally, because she was more adamant about it. And I'm like, ah, no, we could loan this money out easily, low risk at 6%. Like I have a 3% note, but it was, it was 2019. And as soon as the, the COVID lockdown happened and everything turned out okay after that, but like during the middle of that kind of March, April madness, I was like, huh. I'm really glad I have no payment on my house. I'm really glad we're very conservatively financed because you can't take for granted that things didn't turn out the way that it was, it was kind of that V recovery, right? But what if it had been yeah. a sustained downward spiral or what if it had been a two year kind of depression or recession? Like things could have gotten ugly really fast for a lot of people. And the less debt you have and the more cash you have in reserve, the more you could have sustained that kind of situation. So how did you originally, I wanted to gloss over this because I loved it, but just for the sake of some of the audience that's listening to this, that's maybe in the beginning stage and the accumulation stage, how did you go about financing the original properties when you didn't have money? Yeah, private money was a big part of it and all in local banks, local commercial loans. So it, for me, it was 90% private money. Found cool story. A guy was my management professor in college. I was a biology major. I graduated from college, was trying to do the NFL thing, and that didn't work out. So I went back and just took a few business classes. And I met a management professor, Dr. Stone, who was kind of became a mentor, became a friend. And I circled back to him when we started buying properties. And I was like, I need some money. I'm finding good deals. And I'm finding properties at 70% loan to value, but I don't have the money to buy them. And he's like, don't worry about that. <laughs> I got the money. And so he would loan us money at 10% interest. And I would pay him back and then flip a house and pay him back. And it was pretty cool. I figured out, I taught him a thing. He taught me a lot of stuff, but I taught him how to use self-directed retirement accounts. And so he had a ton of money in his retirement account that was sitting there over over exposed to stocks. He, wasn't that, he was okay with stocks, but he wanted more into real estate. Sure. And I taught him about the fact that you could use these kind of boutique retirement account companies that let you self-direct your money and make loans on private to private companies or to real estate. And so for 18 years. I just paid his last loan off earlier this year or <laughs> into last year. But for 18, 19 years, I made him tons of money. I was helping him pay for his retirement groceries through private loans and had several people like him and seller financing, lease options, creative financing. I really got into all that because honestly, I had to. I didn't have a job. I didn't have a W-2 income. So I had to go the creative route, 
Whereas if I had a W-2 income and a solid job and all that, I probably would have gone more traditional and used FHA loans, used the conventional route. But I just you have to take the financing journey that your own path gives you. I feel like it was almost advantageous for you to not have done what I did to where I was making good money in the W-2 corporate job. And I was like, okay, cool. I need to say, I need to do more sales so I can make more money, save more money so I can do this FHA and make more money, save more money so I can do another FHA. And the way that you did it was like, okay, cool. I got to get scrappy. Like we're living in the same reality. We're just viewing it from a different frame of reference. Yeah. It was kind of like lifting weights. Like I forced myself to get into that scarcity. I don't have much money. I don't have any money actually. So how am I going to be creative enough to make this deal work? And that's such an important entrepreneurial skill I have learned since then. So you're right. Like it was, I was super fortunate to have a business partner like I did who really teamed up well. And I feel like I love our team and how we've always worked together. But then that kind of forced scarcity of, all right, I don't have the money. I got to make, it really forced me to get good at deal making. Like I had to get really good at understanding the mechanics of how rental properties worked, how flips worked, what the numbers were to be good were. And every deal, I just looked at it like, all right, how do I make sure my private lender is taken care of and can sleep well at night. And if he or she can sleep well at night and make the interest they want, I can buy an unlimited number of deals because they'll tell their buddy about it and they'll tell their buddy about it. Like never, after you take care of the first one or two private lenders, no problem getting more money because it's virtually unlimited for a small and mighty investor. Somebody, ultimately you're gonna maybe have four or $5 million worth of debt. You can find plenty of private lenders and small bank loans to do everything you need if you keep it in that price range. All right, everyone, remember the deal triangle. You need money, you need knowledge, or you need hustle. Yeah. So what Chad's talking about is if you're listening to this right now and you're sitting, you're thinking in your head, must be nice, must be nice, check yourself. And remember that if you don't have the money and you are in the beginning stages, what actions can you take this week to be able to move forward in the direction that Chad's life is right now and where my life is right now that you can take. And that actually would be really damn good at deal finding. Go underwrite five deals a day, send out the mailers, door knock, go drive for dollars, do whatever you can to find the deals. Because I know a lot of people with a lot of money right now and they cannot find deals. So if you're the person that has the deal and you use the hustle to find it, you will not be hurting for money, my friend. So Chad, what's the vision for the next couple of years? Where are you trying to take this? Let's plug the book that's future in a little bit, and then we'll tell people where they can find you. Yeah, it's been mentioned that ambition conversation earlier. It's been a journey just to figure out like, all right, what's the next thing that really draws my curiosity? And I'm still curious and interested in teaching. I think teaching is calls at me as much as entrepreneurship does. I love both. And so I'm playing that teacher entrepreneur role at the same time. I'm enjoying as a real estate investor. Uh, I've got a couple like pilot deals where we're investing with some other people that let the person who's finding the deals and hustling like I always did just be their silent partner behind the scenes. That's been fun. Like I'm enjoying that. And we'll to see be the capital. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Be the venture capital person. So that's, I think that's for the next few years, I can see that continuing. And then just the teaching role, like it's, I'm playing around with the online media business. Like I, it started off as a hobby. I was a blogger, just sharing my, I was writing, writing. Oh, wait a minute. There's hundred people reading this. Wait a minute. There's a thousand people reading this. And 
So I'm really intrigued by new media, by online media, by online courses, by YouTube. It's really caught my attention a lot. I'm, sure, I'm just I'm getting into the craft of storytelling and teaching and how do I make sure I present something in a way that people really get it and that it really makes sense to them and that they have progress. And then I get a, a lot of have a lot of high and fun out of seeing people go full circle, seeing them buy the first two or three properties, seeing them go from two to 20 or and then pay those properties off and go on their own journeys. So that's a, it's a fun, it's a fun journey to play the role of guide a little bit alongside other people's heroes journeys and not, and be support them and what they're doing. I love that, man. And I love that you've really, truly stuck to your guns and you had your enough number. That is freaking awesome. We don't hear that enough on the show. And I know a lot of guys with a lot of money that are listening to this right now, and they're saying, Ooh, I've got 80000 a month coming in. When is this enough for me? And man, I greatly appreciate you coming on, man. I like being able to highlight some sides of you that you don't normally get to highlight. So this has been an absolute blast. Where can people find you? Yeah, I'm at CoachCarson.com, or if you Google Coach Carson on any of the platforms, I'm active. Got a podcast comes out every Monday. That's kind of where I'm having a lot of fun lately. It's on YouTube. It's on all the normal podcast platforms. And as you, Brian, behind the scenes, I'm doing a little rebranding with the podcast. But if you see, search for Coach Carson podcast, it's it, you'll find it. And I would love to connect with you out there. Sweet. With that has been... Brian and Chad Carson with the Action Academy podcast say with the Action Academy podcast saying Buenas noches to all of you. <laughs> See you guys. Hasta luego. <laughs> hey, real quick, if you're still listening to today's episode, I'm assuming you got value from it. So I need your help specifically. My two-year vision with this show is to help over one million people do what they want when they want with who they want, and I can only do that with your help. There are two main ways that a podcast grows. One is through ratings and reviews, and the other is word of mouth. If you could please leave me a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, as well as send this to one or two friends that you think would get value from it, we can reach the people that we're looking to reach. Thanks in advance. Talk tomorrow.